I'm going to be reading from Psalm 25. Uh, not the whole psalm, I've just picked out a section of it. I'm going to read from uh, beginning in verse 11. Psalm 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The heading of this psalm tells us that it was composed by David. Now, I usually ignore the heading of psalms. Uh, the early psalms are mostly, we're told they're psalms of David. Later on, there's a psalm of Moses, a psalm of Asaph, there are others. But I don't pay attention to that because if I know that David wrote this, I'm tempted to try to locate an event in the narrative of his life that explains the psalm. Why was he in this mood? What was going on? Why is this the theme of his psalm? And, and one reason why I, I want to avoid that is because Bible teachers who do not get poetry or do not like poetry um, do this very thing, that uh, if it's a Psalm of David, then they feel that in order to get the context, uh, pardon me, the meaning of the psalm, they have to get its context. But poems have their own meaning and context. Um, and we have to let them speak for themselves. Uh, they're general enough to fit everyone's experience. And if I don't have an experience exactly like David's, that doesn't mean that the psalm means nothing to me. You see, sometimes Bible teachers study the Bible like they're engineers. And I'm not putting down engineers. Um, I don't want an artist to design the next plane that I fly in. Uh, I want it to be designed by engineers. Uh, but when you become an engineer of the scripture, and especially in the poetry sections, you don't really know what to do with metaphors. It's like um, when, when uh, the psalm says here that God plucked my feet from the net. If I try to literalize that, you know, well, David was walking along and someone had laid this trap and he got caught in this net. And, but what, by his feet? Okay, so his feet have been extricated from... It's like, it doesn't work. It's not what he's saying. And you have to catch the meaning, the feeling of the metaphor, not its literal meaning. So uh, we ha uh, normal life... Um, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm too excited about this. <laughs> Poetry has its own meaning, and life experience is its context. So we all have life experience. We can go to the Psalms. And that's why so many Christians will turn, so many Christians and others will turn to the Psalms for encouragement, uh, to feel like they connect with God. Uh, when the psalmist talks about his guilt, oh, I've, that's been relevant for me at times when I've gone to God in prayer. 
I need to say something about that also. The poet, then, of Psalm 25 was in trouble. He faced the threat of enemies whose violence was hateful. He suffered emotional distress, physical affliction, and his guilty conscience told him he did not deserve God's help. So he had to work through that. At this moment, as he, as he writes this poem, he needs something more than religion. He did not have to write a poem or, or write out his prayer as poetry. He could have gone to the temple and offered a sacrifice. Uh, of course, that's all pretty you know, formal and, and cut and dried. He wouldn't necessarily... I mean, he could talk to a priest, but he wouldn't necessarily get counsel. He'd get more like a verdict. And, uh, and he needed something other than what religion was going to give him. He needed the assurance that he had a special closeness with God. Uh, I saw the saddest thing one day, and I'll, I'll never get over this, because I don't know how the story ended. But um, I was waiting to use an ATM, and I was behind a guy, and there's this small child with him, a girl no more than three years old, and just small little thing. And with this plaintive voice, she was looking at him with big round eyes saying, Daddy, will you forgive me? And he looked at her and he did not even acknowledge her. This is what the poet is looking for. Father, are we good? Do you forgive me? And he needed to have an experience of closeness with God that would reassure him that he could go on. All right. Um, today I'm going to give my last talk on intimacy. And if you need to learn more, you're going to have to consult an expert. Uh, I've surveyed our closest relationships, uh, you know, family, friends, those in the spiritual community. And now, today, I want to talk about intimacy with God. The greatest intimacy that a human is capable of experiencing is with God. And um, it's because no one knows us better and no one loves us more. So... We don't have to confess everything to him. He already knows it. He knows the worst. And he loves us infinitely. So everything can be worked out with God. And, and we can know that, well, the psalm that Nancy read from today, Psalm 139, uh, it, it begins, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I stand up. You know my thoughts from afar. Uh, it's this thorough knowledge of the poet that, that God has, that he recognizes. And we can recognize that. We can be afraid of that. Um, in fact, I was taught to fear. You know, would you do this if you knew Jesus was watching? You know, uh, and for me, it was like, uh, would you go see a movie if you knew Jesus was watching? 
finally, I learned to ask, well, would you go to the bathroom if you knew Jesus was watching? <laughs> um, but but I mean, even, even still, we don't have to worry about that because, uh, you know, God made it all and he knows it all. And he, he knows us more than we know ourselves. The challenge of this uh, relationship, of course, is on our side. How well do we know him? But that's the good news of the gospel, is that God wants us to know him and to know him well. Intimacy is, with us is his desire and his design. And that's why there's a Bible. That's why there's Jesus, through whom God reveals himself to us to, so we can know him well. So that Jesus can say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So intimacy with God means coming to know him and know him better. And through Jesus is our most direct access to knowledge of God. And of course, through scripture, which is what gives us Jesus. Now, before I give you my method of developing intimacy with God, I have to tell you, there is no method for developing intimacy with God. <laughs> and, and if we get that, we're, we're doing well. Uh, the Lord wants us to... Uh, he wants to draw us to himself. And he draws us by grace and through the energy of his spirit. So if we don't have the energy, well, we don't. His spirit gives us the vital energy and we are able to, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> all the gates open to grace. All the doors open to grace. So as we are drawn to him, the way is made for us and it's made by grace. Uh, Paul describes this in Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> we do not work our way into intimacy with God. It's like our other intimate relationships. It develops over time. And by simply being together. Opportunities come to us every day to spend time with God. In fact, opportunities come to us every minute. This is an opportunity right now. Because it does not have to travel any distance to get to us. Even though we'll talk about God drawing near to us, the fact is, as he told Jeremiah, he fills the heavens and the earth. He can't be avoided. And again, as the psalm that, that Nancy read from, where can I go to flee from your presence? Anywhere I can even imagine going, to the highest heaven or the deepest hell, you're there. So there's, there's no escaping his presence. So every moment is an opportunity for us to think of him, to converse with God, and to, you know, to, to be with him in intimacy. Now, experiences like the, the two-year-old and the bells, uh, experience in, experiences in prayer may stir emotions. And uh, thank you. I appreciate that, Kelly. And bless you. 
but intimacy is more than a feeling that we have when we pray. It is a continuous companionship. Paul said, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. As you have received him, so walk in him. We receive Jesus as gift. We receive him every time we pray as gift. Uh, we have audience with him every time we pray, and it is gift. It is grace. And we continue to receive friendship with him throughout our entire life. And that's how it comes to us. We receive it. We don't work at it. I, I grew up in the point system, you know, building up credits. And if I build up enough credits, then I know God loves me. If I build up enough credits, then I know I'm a good person, or at least decent. But being the little rascal that I was, by the time I was 12 years old, I had so much debt <laughs> that I was never going to build up enough credits to hit, reach a baseline. So I never felt fully accepted. And if only there was someone in my life, if only my grandmother had lived just a little bit longer, who affirmed me as a person as I was, I wouldn't have had all the problems I have today. <laughs> anyway, when we went through the book of Hebrews, I pointed out that a key idea running all the way through it is that of drawing near to God. And it, and it keeps repeating that phrase, drawing near. This is the goal of our spiritual existence. The only reason we call ourselves Christians today, and fewer of us are doing that today than we were five years ago, but the only reason we call ourselves Christians today is because God has drawn us to himself, and it's about knowing him and living with him and developing intimacy. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. James simplifies the instructions. He just says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That if you make any step towards God, he's already there with you. Now, to know more about God, we can study our Bibles, we can study theology, and that will strengthen our foundation. I think that's a good thing to do. But our goal is not intimate knowledge of the Bible or uh, theological intimacy, but a relational intimacy. Because we can run into the danger of the Pharisees who worshipped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They knew the right words to say. They had the liturgy of worship down, but their heart wasn't there. And the heart is everything with God. So we can mumble through our prayers, not even knowing what to say, and he's right there smiling, loving us. Um, I had a friend who uh, lived in Chile for a while, and uh, the first six months she was there, she was perfecting her Spanish, and uh, every once in a while she'd say something, and her friends would laugh and say, you talk like a child, you know, like a three-year-old. 
well, yeah. Um, and I think that God hears some of our prayers the same way, that he just smiles and says, you talk like a child, but I get it, and I'll take care of it. The experience of intimacy is much more important than knowing about intimacy. The experience of God is much more important um, than knowing about God. Now, for me, the most beautiful statement in this psalm and the theme I'm trying to communicate is in verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him. We need to look at a couple of words in this verse. First of all, friendship translates the Hebrew word that implies intimacy. Uh, it can be a secret interaction between friends, a shared closeness, uh, an intimate conversation. Uh, it apparently comes from an Arabic word that means to recline at table together. Uh, and so you're close enough, comfortable enough to be uh, to not be on guard, but to relax and share this meal in a reclining position as they did in those times. The word is also used to describe God's secret assembly or council, that, that God convenes these, these meetings and not everyone's allowed in there. It's a closed session, right? And uh, when God... Um, criticizes the prophets of Jeremiah's day who he says are, they're prophesying out of their own heart, out of their own imagination. I haven't spoken to them. God says, for who among them has stood in the council of Yahweh to see and to hear his word or who has paid attention to his word and listen? But if they had stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. So this, this, this secret council of God, there's this place um, where acquaintances aren't allowed, only close friends, right? This is intimacy. Uh, this is an intimate space. It's as if God has a private office and no one is allowed in it except his, his closest friends. I remember when uh, John F. Kennedy was our president and there was a there was, I think it was a press conference or uh, interview going on. And while he's there behind his desk in the Oval Office, his son Johnny comes running in and climbs into his lap. You see, only, only close family could do that. Um, if it was one of us, the, the Secret Service would be all over us and we'd still be in prison today. So, you know, th this is God's counsel. And the psalm tells us that certain people are given that privilege, that, that friendship with the Lord is the, is the privilege of certain people. It's a daring idea and one that few other religions have attempted, that a human person could be the friend of a deity, Abraham was the first person in the scripture to be referred to as God's friend. 
in fact, there's an interesting insight into friendship in Genesis in this regard. Uh, God comes to Abraham. Now, we have the, the three angels in this icon depicting uh, God's visit to Abraham and Sarah. And one of these angels speaks as if he were Yahweh himself. God speaks through this angel. And uh, so Abraham has hosted them. He's fed them. They've given him a wonderful promise that both he and his wife laughed at because it seemed impossible. And now the angels are on their way. But one of them stops. And we're told, the Lord said to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Here's this friendship, and it's like God is saying, well, we're too close for me to keep this from him. Can I hide from him what I'm about to do? Because it's big, and it will involve his, his nephew Lot. And he really ought to know. Have you ever had a secret that you knew about somebody, and you knew you, you should not tell, but you're with a close friend, and you think, well, I can't keep it from this person, even though you must. And God's saying, well, I can't keep this from Abraham. We're too close. He deserves to know this. He must know this. And so he tells him what his plans are. The New Testament is equally bold when it talks about us having fellowship with God. And we talked about koinonia sometime in the past. And, uh, and this koinonia that's experienced in the church among believers we also have with God, and John says this in 1 John, and indeed, our, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, intimacy is implied here also. This, this sharing together goes beyond just we have talks with God. We have intimate conversations with God. Now, the next important word in this verse is not understood very well. And it's the word fear. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And most people reading the Bible for the first time react to this and say, what, am I supposed to be scared of God? Because it goes against everything that we see in, in Jesus and, and our, you know, really happy hallmark ideas of God. And uh, my answer is, well, you'd be silly not to be afraid of God. We have no concept of how immeasurably vast God is, nor, we, nor do we appreciate the complete otherness of God, you know, how different God is from us. I, th I think if God were to appear to us in, in any fashion, we would feel terror. We, we would not know what we're seen, first of all, because it goes beyond anything our rational minds can comprehend. You know, and we'd have to have him assure us the way angels always did when they showed up. And I wonder if they ever got tired of that. You know, every time I appear to one of those humans, the first thing, you know, I have to do is say, don't be afraid. Because <laughs> they're always 
always afraid. It always happens every time. You see, my, my childish notion of God was that he was a human person blown out to infinite proportions. And when people talk about the man upstairs, that, you know, that suggests a very shallow view of God. He's not the man at all. He, he's neither male nor female, but he's both. He's, he's the, you know, the all. He is. However, being scared of God is not what is meant here. Fear became a comprehensive term to cover our entire relationship with God. It's, it's like an abbreviation. It's shorthand. And it expresses the essence of a creator and creation encounter. And the creature is always going to realize the infinite superiority of the creator. So fear stands for respect, for reverence. Reverence is a special kind of fear. Um, it's not paranoia. It's not phobia. It's not being scared. Uh, but it's a kind of fear evoked by the sacred, by the mystery, by the unknown. I really don't know what this is. And uh, it affects me every time I hear the bells ring. It means that we take God seriously. When Jesus taught us the Our Father, he taught us to pray our Father, our Heavenly Father, just to distinguish him from any uh, amateurs. Our Father, who is in heaven, and quite literally, let your name be revered. This is taking God seriously. Let your name be revered. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your name be revered by me, by the whole world. And you know, the way that's going to happen is when God ultimately brings the curtain down on human history and all that will be left is reverence for him. Ideas and concepts do not scare us. We play with ideas. We manipulate concepts. Uh, we look at them from different angles. God, however, is not a concept. And so we're told in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. And he is, because he, he tells us, I am. And we can say, he is. We can also say, here am I. The second line of the psalm is as rich as the first. He makes known to them his covenant. The covenant is a major theme in the scriptures. In fact, the Christian Bible is divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's the significance of Testament. And what a covenant does is it guarantees a relationship between two parties. And there are stipulations as to the nature of that relationship. So in some instances in scripture, it can be a treaty between nations. 
or it can be something more like a business agreement between partners or companies. Uh, there are humans who make covenants with each other. Uh, two that come to mind is a covenant that Abraham made with the local Philistines that he wouldn't attack them and they wouldn't attack him. And the other was a covenant between David and Jonathan in which an intense love was the basis of their relationship. And, and they said, we've got to be true to each other forever. And so they made this covenant, which both of them adhered to. Uh, oh, there's one other type of covenant, and that's formalizing a commitment between lovers in marriage. And God's covenant with Israel was that. God's covenant with Abraham was a friendship covenant. His relationship, or his covenant with Israel, was a marriage covenant. And the most beautiful expression of that marriage covenant is found in Ezekiel. I mean, there are also beautiful expressions of it in Jeremiah. But in Ezekiel, God is telling Israel, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I made my vow to you, and you entered into a covenant with me, declares the Lord, and you became mine. When Israel broke that covenant, God promised to give a new covenant to his people, one that was not written in stone, like what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, but one written on their hearts. He says, this is what's missing. It's not in your heart to love me and to be faithful to me. So I'm going to give you a covenant that enters you and that attaches your heart to me. And so he says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, will be uh, replaced by a new covenant. Well, not replaced, but what? There would just be a new covenant. And that new covenant began when Jesus presented the cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. And so through Jesus, God inserts himself into our hearts, into our minds, into our spirits, into our bodies, because intimacy works in all these levels. From the beginning, the goal of God's covenant was intimacy. He told uh, Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me, me and you and your offspring to be God to you and your offspring. In uh, Exodus, he tells Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's the heart of the covenant. You will be mine. I will be you. You won't have any other God. I'll be your only God. I will be your God and you will be my people. You know, this, this kind of exclusiveness is is again what's, what makes for intimacy. You know, I'm, not, I'm not doing this for everyone. I'm doing this for you. And, and this is personalized in the song of the lovers where they say, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I belong to my, my spouse, and my spouse belongs to me in covenant. 
it's always been about God's love for his people. In Jeremiah, the Lord appeared to Israel from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Hallmark hasn't stolen that one yet. This is the significance of God making known his covenant. We discover the closeness that he offers us. That, that intimacy with God, it's not just, it's not a pipe dream. It's, it's not a beautiful thought. It's, it's a reality. And millions before us and millions today have experienced and can tell, you, tell us about it. There are those of us here who can talk about it. But we all have been called to know it. Like I said before, there's no method to achieve intimacy with God. But there is a matter of saying yes to God. There's a matter of accepting his offer. I want to be your God. I want you to belong to me. And, and we do that not once in a lifetime, not at a big rally or crusade. We, we do that every day. And, and we, we can do that many times in a day. We can say yes. If we just think about God during the day, if we just have a thought about God, we can say yes. It's not necessarily a prayer. It's just I'm thinking about God right now. I'm thinking about his love. I'm enjoying the sunshine. I'm enjoying the clear sky. I'm thinking about God. I'm looking at the ocean and it's sparkling brightly enough to blind me. And I'm thinking about God. And I see someone who's a beautiful person and I think about God. I got a realization this week that it's really goofy. I think I need to see a forest a wave crashing on the beach, you know, to have a God feeling. What about a car engine? What about fabricated things? Can, can they speak to us? Can there be something that makes that engine sacred? Because we hear them all the time, and, and typically we think of them as disruption if we're trying to sit in prayer. But I was thinking about spoons and bowls and tables and lamps, all these things made holy when they were placed in the temple. All these manufactured things made by hand, the hand of humans, were made holy. So maybe some things we've never even considered, possibilities, being holy can be holy. Of course, you know, art, music can do this for us, but maybe other things fabricate. I don't know. Anyway, like every close relationship, this one thrives on conversation, on communication. Uh, For instance, this entire psalm, Psalm 25, is a prayer. And in verse 4, the poet prays, 
Make me to know your ways, O Lord. What's, what does that mean? Well, intimacy is knowing someone else's ways, knowing your spouse's habits and quirks and idiosyncrasies. You know, when you've seen a married couple that's been together for a long time and they complete each other's sentences, they know what the other person's going to say next. Moses prayed, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. If we know God's ways, we know him. If we know him, we know his ways, and his ways are higher than our ways. He knows all of our ways. And, and you, know, you know God well when you know his ways. That's a part of our intimacy with him. Prayer, it's not a search for the right words. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm working God the way my grandchildren work me. Grandpa. <laughs> um, it's, it's not trying to evoke his pity. Lord, you know, I'm really hurting today and, you know, I could use something like winning the lottery or something like that. Um, it's, it's not like we have to convince him to help us. Prayer isn't any of that. Someone asked me, well, if God doesn't give me what I want when I ask for it in prayer, why pray? And I said, well, maybe not to change the world, maybe to change you. Maybe I I pray so that I can change and have the strength to face the world as it is. Prayer is not trying to muster up the right kind of faith to get God to, to give you what you want. It's just another interaction in an ongoing conversation. And you can tell him anything. It's okay to tell him what you want and what you need. But it is our here and now awareness of God. And that awakens us to everything. When, when I wake to God in the here and now, for the first time, I noticed that those flowers across the driveway are blooming, that, that the sun has drawn out the blossom, and there it is. It was closed up last night in the cold, the darkness of a moonless night, but this morning, it's, I see it. I'm aware. I'm awake now. There's no need to be wordy. It's more important to be aware of God's presence Evagrius, one of the earliest church fathers, said, a single word in intimacy is worth more than a thousand at a distance. And even when you're not praying, just to turn your, your spirit towards God is enough to reconnect and to pass through the gates and to be in his secret counsel in enjoying his presence in the way that he's called us to. Would you stand, please? And now may the Heavenly Father who loves us 
the Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed to us the truth of God. The Holy Spirit whose feminine presence nurtures us constantly. Be with us all week long and bring us back to him and to this this private place where it's just you and God. 